Uh, we open this morning to Ecclesiastes chapter 11. We have 10 chapters of Ecclesiastes behind us now, and there is no question that we have been warned. Life is short. The writer in Ecclesiastes continues to make this point that earthly treasures are fleeting. And if we put our hope in what we are grasping at in this life only, then we are going to come up short. He has shown us that over and over again. If, if your hope is in your career, your accomplishments, even in family or relationships, if that's where you're staking everything, then you will not find that ultimate satisfaction. Ecclesiastes has reminded us that if we are aggrieved by injustice and unfairness and oppression, if those sorts of things that we see around us are disturbing and troubling and we want them fixed, Ecclesiastes reminds us that they won't be fixed in this life. Uh, to a degree, we can obviously have a, a clear influence in, the, in this world as the Holy Spirit works through us, but if our goal is to make this a better place apart from a work of God in the hearts of human beings, that'll never be realized. If we are only living for what we can get out of life under the sun, and that's been one of the themes we've seen in Ecclesiastes, this sort of existence that happens just for here and now, doesn't look beyond this, doesn't look to God for hope, then, then ultimately we will find ourselves time and time again saying, what's the point? If I'm engaging in all of this effort and, and all of this work and all of this to try to build up accomplishments and, and, and a resume and, and stuff, collecting of stuff, if that becomes the focal point, then Ecclesiastes keeps reminding us that we're going to one day come to the end of it all and all of those accomplishments won't go with us. And in fact, once we're gone, we're likely to be forgotten and the accomplishments squandered. And, and so Ecclesiastes brings us to the place of repeatedly asking, what's the point? The warnings in this book are dire. They are dark at points. The earthly writer, the teacher or preacher, as he's identified in here, likely Solomon, has basically taken us through a series of tests that he's been able to do as sort of this wealthy, wise, older individual. He's been able to sort of test out things in life, work, pleasure, hobbies, relationships, wisdom, knowledge, uh, trying to take all of that and see if, if any of that would somehow provide him with meaning and, and satisfaction. And one by one, at the end of each experiment, he discards the object of the test and says... Vanity, right? Vanity. The Hebrew word is hevel. Fleeting. Futile. One by one, as he's tried these things out that, that man has said should bring him peace, should bring him meaning, should bring him joy, one by one, he comes to the end of the test and says, you know what? This is just fleeting. This goes away just like everything else. It's not going to give substantial, lasting peace. And, and so we're left at this point in the book sort of sitting at the feet of this older, wiser, experienced man who has tried out all of these different facets of life and saying, okay, then what is the point? What is it that you're trying to get us to? And I, I think chapters 11 and 12 largely comprise his answer, and it's a four-part answer. We'll look at two of the parts this morning, uh, but really a four-part answer of, of how the people of God are to live in sort of this under-the-sun world, in this world that is clamoring for success and gain and accomplishment here under the sun, how is it that we are called to live? And there's four words that characterize his answer, risk, 
rejoice, remember, and respond. And we'll look at risk and rejoice this morning. Starting in chapter 11, verse 1. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. If a tree falls to the south or to the north in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. I want to come back to verses 1 and 2 in, in just a moment and, and look at what they mean. But the main point of the section is in large part familiar with what we've already seen in Ecclesiastes. And that is, there are a lot of things that happen to us and around us in life that we do not control. God does. God is in control, but we are not. And there are a lot of things that take place uh, that affect us, but we cannot affect them necessarily back. We're not all powerful, we're not all knowing, not omnipotent, not omniscient. God is. And so, as he describes here, God forms the weather, God creates life, God causes things to grow, all things that lie within God's realm and not ours. So verse 3 says, the rain clouds pour down rain, trees fall in the woods. Uh, The teacher is in large part reiterating what he started with back in chapter 1, if you remember that, that sort of everything sort of goes around that comes around sort of picture in chapter one where he's talking about these God-ordained cycles in life. It it just keeps happening. Life just keeps happening. Day turns into night, night turns into day. And so the picture is here. Weather happens, trees fall, things go on. You and I have little if not any control over most of these things. There's stuff that simply happens and affects us. Ecclesiastes 9.11 reminded us time and Events, the word there was chance, but it could safely be translated as events or happenings. Time and events happen to them all. Much of what we encounter is out of our control. It is what we experience and deal with in life. So that prompts this question. In light of life's uncertainties and in light of the brevity of life that he's mentioned time and time again, in light of the fact that you and I don't have control over life in the sense that we we can't be determinative about its outcome. We can't answer what tomorrow will bring. How do we respond? One way that he describes here is the play it safe model, which is to just hold on to my stuff, hoard what I have, and be ready just in case something goes wrong. And so I accumulate for me and, and I cling tight to it for the purpose of protecting myself. That seems to be the picture in verse 4 when he talks about this farmer who observes the wind and doesn't sow, regards the clouds and will not reap. The picture is of this farmer who's watching the weather constantly and he's afraid. He's essentially paralyzed with fear because he doesn't know what it's going to do next. And he's not sure when the right time is to plant. It could be a drought, there could be a flood either could destroy his crops, could ruin the seed. And so he's standing there in his barn with his seed bag by his side, and he is not moving. And as a consequence, nothing happens. The old saying, nothing ventured, nothing gained. And that's where this guy is at. He's become captive to sort of the circumstances around him and said, I'm just going to stay right here and I'll just hold on to this seed 
for some dire emergency, at least I'll have something to hold on to. The opposite point of view we've seen elsewhere in Ecclesiastes, and that's just living for self, living just sort of a riotous kind of life for my own pleasure, not concerned about anybody else. I feel like time is short, so I might as well just go and grab all the gusto kind of mentality, just do what pleases me and not worry about consequences. So what are we to do? We know that God provides sufficiently for our needs. It's been a message we've seen again and again in Ecclesiastes, food, drink, work, all of these things that God provides for his people, the sufficient needs for the necessities of life. So how should we respond? And that's where verses one and two come in. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or eight, or seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. There's two possible meanings to, to what these verses are talking about. Um, commentators, scholars are pretty evenly divided on this. I'm not sure we have to go strict either or, that it's got to be one or the other, because I think there's shades of both involved, at least in what the teacher is saying at this point. One is the idea that it's business and business investment. And so casting your bread upon the waters is sort of looking back at, at ancient trading where everything was done on ships and you, you took some of your goods and you traded them and you invested them and you did business and you sort of scattered trusting that God would provide a, a return back. The idea is taking some prudent risk, taking the wisdom God has given you, taking what you have and not just hoarding it, but actually using it to do business. And if that's what it means, and as, as sort of pragmatic as this sounds, if that's what it means, then verse two is really kind of a basic principle that you learn if you learn anything about investing for retirement, which is diversify. Don't just put all your seed into one place. And so when he says to seven or eight, it could have that idea uh, where it's uh, use your wisdom instead of hoarding for yourself, take some wise risk, invest the money in other places, and again, trust God for the return. That could be the one option of what this means. The other, and again, I'm not sure that these two are exclusive of each other, but the other is generosity. God has provided for you and your family. He has given you bread to eat. He has provided you a home. He takes care of you. And the temptation then is to be like that farmer, and hoard it and hold on to it and protect me and my family for that day of potential disaster when instead the response here is, cast your bread upon the waters. Go ahead and be boldly generous. Trust that God will provide for you. Realize that there are people who are in far greater need than you are and share with them. Take what God has given and be generous and gracious to them. Be boldly generous and not stingy. Certainly that is consistent with what Solomon has taught elsewhere and Scripture has taught elsewhere. Book of Proverbs 19.17 says, Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord and he will repay him for his deed. Uh, the, the idea again being that be generous, trust God, he'll provide, he knows your needs. Go ahead and don't hold on to everything so tightly, but share. Be gracious about the things that you have. In 2 Corinthians 8, God's word takes the churches in Macedonia and uses them as an example of this kind of generosity. Let me read 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 4. Paul writes, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. 
For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. The, the picture there is that the Macedonian Christians, to say they were not well off, would be an understatement. Severe affliction, deep poverty. These people are suffering, and yet they are saying to Paul as he's getting ready to travel to an area where there is even greater need, where the believers there in Jerusalem and other places are struggling even more, they're saying, here, take Take this and share this with them. They need it more than we do. And the description he goes on in 2 Corinthians and gives, the model for that is Christ, the generosity of the Lord Jesus Christ, that here is the the king of the universe who experiences the glories of heaven, who sheds that in order to become a man and to live a humble life brought to death on the cross so that we might be made rich, so that out of his suffering we, who are poor might be made rich by his grace to give us a salvation that we would never deserve or never earn. Whether it's investment or generosity or some measure of both, uh, the point here in Ecclesiastes 11 seems to be there is some wisdom in being careful but taking risk, in being willing to trust God and take risks and do things which, which don't necessarily seem to fit a wise sort of American humanistic sort of business plan of profit and return or return on investment. I, I'm not sure we have to conclude that it's absolutely one or the other. It's possible to take what you have and make thoughtful investments and trust God for the return. And it's also possible to take from that return and take from God's provision and be generous and, and minister to others. But the picture in verse 1 is of casting out, dispersing with our own stuff. Cast your bread upon the waters. Taking what belongs to us and in some way sending it out and then trusting by faith that our God knows our needs and will still provide. So that it's not this sort of nervous kind of, should I really do this? I I don't know if this is a smart idea. It is a cheerful, generous giving that trusts and believes in God, in the creator that has faith to believe that he knows our needs and will supply. So therefore you have the the farmer then in verse six, in the morning sow your seed and at evening don't withhold it for you do not know which will prosper this or that or whether both or like will be good. His, his point there is you still don't know the outcome. It's not like it changes. You become a believer in Jesus Christ and suddenly you know that uh, I know exactly what will happen when I do this, when I give this away. But what he's saying there again is it still comes down to faith. It still comes down to believing that God will provide whatever return he believes is sufficient that we need. And so go ahead and cast out and disperse. Give away. Hold things loosely. That, that's ultimately... Faith in the Lord to be our provider, to be the one who knows our needs. How do I know that I can take some wise risk? How do I know that I can be generous and not come away from it empty-handed? By trusting in him. In in fact, he makes the point in verse 5, trying to to clarify, you, you don't understand all of this. And he talks about essentially the creation of a child, an infant in the womb. And he says, you and I don't understand how God creates this body and and places the spirit within the body and creates human life. You and I can't 
scientists try like crazy to see if they can somehow replicate this, but the reality is he says, you, you don't know how this works, and yet it happens, right? You believe that it happens, you see it happen all the time. And his point is, God does this, God makes everything, and so go and cast seed in the morning, cast seed in the evening, trust God. You don't know his ways, but you know his promises, you know that you can rest in him. And if we are convinced that all that we have is a gift from our creator, then we are stewards of those gifts. And so we receive them by faith, and we then use them with the wisdom that he's given us, whether to carry on business and seek a return or to, to be generous with others and, and cheerful in our giving. In, in this under-the-sun world where, where people celebrate the accumulation of stuff and wealth and cling to it tightly... The call in Ecclesiastes is, you're different. Hold that loosely. Be thankful for it. Enjoy it. Be glad that God has provided to you for this season, that he has given whatever this is to you. Thank him for it, but don't cling to it like your life depends on it. Scatter it. Be willing to share it. Be willing to disperse it. We're to hold the stuff that we have loosely as a gift from the creator to be used for his purposes. Take some risk. Verse 7, light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. By the way, it's good we didn't read that last Sunday, right? Yeah, that would have just confused everyone last Sunday when Monday came. Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun at a distance, you know. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. How do we live out our brief lives in an under-the-sun world? The teacher calls us first to risk, second to rejoice. Light is sweet. If you've been on vacation at some scenic place, maybe somewhere along the East Coast where you've been on a shore, you know how, how fun it is at least one of those mornings to wake up early and watch the sunrise and to just experience that, that beautiful sense of how wonderful creation is and that, that dawning of a new day and all of the opportunity that comes with that. You and I probably in day-to-day -day life don't necessarily do that every morning where we just sit in awe of the morning and contemplate the day when the commute is waiting and the kids are crying and life is just already going at 100 miles an hour. We may not pause to do exactly that. Uh, but the calling here... It is to just enjoy the pleasantness of each day, to, to, to give thanks, to, to see the, the rising of the sun as the dawning of new opportunity to live for God. There is hope. There is opportunity. He gives this contrast in verse 8 with the days of darkness. The contrast between light and days of darkness is a contrast of life and death. The days of darkness are the days to be spent in the grave. And his message is, you are alive so enjoy it. Enjoy it. Savor it. Rejoice in it. This echoes back to chapter 9 and, and some of the message that we saw there in chapter 9 where the teaching is about being grateful for life. He's not disdaining eternity. He's not sort of ignoring the fact that we go on to, to an eternal life after this life here on earth. He's not disregarding that. He's just reminding us that this life that we have now it's given to us by the Creator. It is supposed to be enjoyed. It is supposed to be something that we, we savor 
and we see as an opportunity to experience more of God's creation, more of God's grace, more of the light and the sun. It's a gift from God. Death is going to play a significant part in his closing. We will see it next week when we move into chapter 12. The whole front half of chapter 12 is getting old and dying. So there you go. There's, there's your encouraging tidbit for next Sunday. <laughs> Preparing for death. But his message is, so live well. You, you have this time. You have life and breath now. So enjoy it. Even though the end is coming, that doesn't stop the teacher from urging joy. For as dire a book as Ecclesiastes seems to be at points, we constantly come across these sort of, these sort of ex exhortations to live well, to enjoy what God has provided, precisely because once you come to grips with the fact that your life is short, it should change your perspective. Once you, once you are hit in the face as many times as we are in Ecclesiastes with the brevity of life, then it should change how we live today and make us hold things here more loosely, be more grateful for what we have, spend our time and energy on things like family members and loved ones who will live on for eternity. It's a basic stewardship issue. You have life and hope and time right now. What are you doing with them? That's really his appeal to us, is what are we doing with this time? At minimum, we're called to rejoicing. As he says there in verse uh, 8, if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. Continue to savor life. It's a good balance now, because we read verse 9, and it's not just the youth who are to rejoice. Verse 8 made it clear, rejoice in them all. Verse 9 says, rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart Cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. This enjoyment of life is for all of us. That was the, the, the comment in verse 8. All of us should enjoy all of the years. But now he's going to particularly turn to those who are young in his audience, those who are perhaps less likely to think about the brevity of life each day, those who are less likely to, to ponder how much time that they have left, those who are perhaps less likely to savor each day as a gift from God because they're young and they're, they're just taken in life and they're not thinking anything about what the future might hold or how long it might be. They just assume it's going to be long. And so he now talks to those who are younger to those who don't realize how quickly it may be over and who may not fully appreciate the blessing that they have in taking breath. And he calls on you to rejoice. He says, young, young man, in your youth, be glad. Enjoy it. Enjoy life. In fact, he gives two imperatives here that are really very interesting in verse 9, beyond rejoice. And, and these two are linked First one is walk in the ways of your heart, and the second one is to know that God holds you accountable there in verse 9. Walk and know. These two essentially go hand in hand. The first one is probably the more interesting one for us because it sounds sort of worldly in its philosophy if we were to lift it out of its context. Essentially, it says, follow your heart. Follow the desires of your heart. Pursue them. Now, we know the culture says that, but here's God saying it, and it sort of sounds maybe a little bit startling. Jeffrey Myers, who's written an excellent book on Ecclesiastes, says this, the overarching point in the Bible is that while some things are prohibited, everything else is left wide open for you to pursue if your heart so desires. We have great freedom 
to apply the wisdom that God has given us and the skills and the gifts and the talent he's given us to pursue those desires, to, to find joy and for fulfillment in chasing after the, the things that, that God has not prohibited and that are set out before us to enjoy. But there's always the caveat to that. Listen to the psalmist in Psalm 37. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. There's David saying a similar message. He will give you the desires of your heart, but the caveat to that is trust in the Lord. Dwell in the land in faithfulness. Find your delight in, in him changing your heart and lining your delights up with those that are biblical delights. He'll work in your heart, and as you delight yourself in him, He'll give you desires to fulfill that match with that, that match with the, the things that will bring you joy. And so pursue those things. God longs to fulfill the desires of our heart. And, and that's why walking in the ways of your heart then is also coupled with the caution in this verse at the end of verse 9, but know for all these things God will bring you into judgment. He's not offering license here to do whatever you think you want to do, whatever little thought crosses your mind, whatever little desire comes to your inner man, you are accountable to God. We're not to live carelessly, recklessly, sinfully in disobedience to God, but God is calling you, especially those, as he says here, who are younger, to receive the life that God is giving you as a precious gift from him and to pursue it with your full being and your strength in gladness, trusting in him. Spend your days enjoying the exhilaration of what God has set before you and be thankful for it because his reminder to us coming real soon is those days will be short. Our good God has made a glorious creation and he has made you and I to enjoy it. We're, we've been given eyes and ears and, and, and all that ability that we can savor, that we can, we can look out at that sunrise we can look up at those mountains and just take in the beauty of what God has done in creation. And he desires that we experience it and that we glorify him in it. As the teacher has told us often, we are to thank him. Pause and give thanks to him for what he has done and what he has provided. Knowing that one day we will stand before him accountable as stewards of his good gifts. Verse 10. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. There it is one more time. Verse 10, I think, addresses what is probably the, if not the chief, one of the chief enemies that keeps us from enjoying the life that God has designed for us and, and given to us, and it is our propensity to worry. It is our propensity to not just enjoy the moment, but to think past the moment about what could go wrong. And if, if we might enjoy this moment, but we're still thinking about what's due at school or what's due at work or, or what's going on with this kid, and, 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 and there's all of these other things that keep entering, and so that, that ability to rejoice and to enjoy tends to get robbed away by the difficulties of life and the way in which we respond to them. That's why he uses this word vexation that he's already used several times in Ecclesiastes. Vexation is kind of a, a picture for us, a, a picture that shows the intersection of frustration and anxiety. It, it's both. It's being anxious. It's being agitated. It's a sense of worry. It's a sense of 
I, I can't figure out these circumstances. I can't figure out what's next. I can't think of a solution to this. And it's just troubling. And instead of being able to thank God in the moment for the grace to live in that moment and the life and the breath and the wisdom that he's given, it, is, it just spills over into an agitated state of vexation. He's just talked about youth, and for many young adults, that, that transition from the, the cheerful days of childhood into adulthood tend to be filled with all of these series of pressures and things to worry about. You finish college, you got to get a job, you got to get a car, you got to figure out housing, maybe there's a, a spouse. There's all of these things that, that we can trust God to provide these gifts from his hand in his time, or they can just become this endless string of burdens. When will this happen? Why isn't this happening? Fulfill this now. And they become just a source of vexation. Instead of enjoying life as a gift from the creator, it suddenly seems like life has just become this sort of endless run of new unsolvable problems and burdens that weigh us down. The only way to remove vexation from your heart is to trust the one who is sovereign over creation. It's the only way that that happens. That, that's not a, just, just do that. Just tell your heart, no more vexation. It, it has to be replaced by a confident trust that your creator understands what looks like a series of unsolvable problems, and he's already walked through those. He already knows how those are going to go, and he's already going to carry them out in your life. Trust him. Jesus taught about this in Matthew chapter 6 when he talks about the worry about what you're going to eat and what you're going to drink and, and just the sense of panic, if you will, about what, what will tomorrow bring and getting anxious over those things. And what he says there is do not be anxious about your life, what you'll eat or what you'll drink, nor about your body, what you'll put on. And he doesn't stop there, right? He doesn't just say don't do this. He says look at the birds, look at the flowers. Who's caring for them, right? See the bird that just flew overhead? I care for them, and if I care for them, how much more do I care for you? And so Matthew 6.30 says, But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? It's a message again calling us to, to replace worry with faith and trust in him, a confident resting in him. Pushing vexation away means taking God at his word. He has promised to give me life and breath and to sustain me until the day that he calls me into his presence. I can rest in that, or I should rest in that, and not with a, a fake smile and a disbelieving, churning gut that, that sort of just keeps going on with this vexation. It is rather a genuine trust in God and his ways, so I am free to enjoy life as a gift of his grace. The second phrase there, put away pain from your body. Don't we wish, huh? How do we do that? What's the secret there? I, I think a number of translations translate that differently, and ESV, I, I'm not convinced here that pain is the best translation. The Hebrew word could just as well be evil, misery, or distress. It is the same Hebrew word that you see in um, Ecclesiastes 12.1 when it says, before the evil days come. Not the painful days, but the evil days. So I'm not sure why they went with pain at that point, but it's really the idea of, of putting away evil. And, and I think the phrase in verse 10 about putting away evil is a companion to the closing statement in verse 9 about being accountable, knowing that we are accountable before God. Just as I am to purge 
that sense of vexation from my heart by delighting in God's sweet care over my life, so I am to confront and put away the evil desires that will well up in my heart by living in the light of God's truth and being accountable to him, being accountable to what I know he's already said. Life is short. Youthfulness is fleeting. That's why the, the teacher one last time says right at the end of that, youth and the dawn of life are vanity. One more time he brings up Hebel. He says, you will not be young for long. Youth will leave you. It is fleeting. That is not a permission to live as you please or an excuse for foolishness. The fleeting nature of life is designed by God to be an incentive for living well. The very fact that life is short is designed by God to instill in you and I a sense of stewardship, a sense that I only have so much time to spend and to live life with the joy and the energy and the grace that God has given to fulfill what he has set out for me to do and for his glory. That's why so much of this chapter is just about holding things on earth loosely. Scatter it, disperse it, put away, remove Scatter the seed, cast your bread. When one's hope is fully in Christ, and he says, revel in him. Hold fast to your creator, who we're going to be told next week when we go into chapter 12, remember your creator. Hold fast to him because he is sure. Everything else, it's okay to be free with that and to scatter that because you can trust that God knows your needs and will provide. Stop clinging to the things of this world as if they somehow will fulfill you. Let me finish with just reading to you a portion. John Piper wrote a great book a number of years ago called Don't Waste Your Life. Hopefully those of you who are young have read it and those of us who are old still have time to read it. Um, but Piper says in Don't Waste Your Life, risk is right. And the reason is not because God promises success to all our ventures in his cause. There is no promise that every effort for the cause of God will succeed, at least not in the short run. John the Baptist risked calling King Herod an adulterer when he divorced his own wife in order to take his brother's wife. For this, John got his head chopped off, and he had done right to risk his life for the cause of God and truth. Jesus had no criticism for him, only the highest praise. Paul risked going up to Jerusalem to complete his ministry to the poor. He was beaten, thrown in prison for two years, and then shipped off to Rome and executed there two years later. And he did right to risk his life for the cause of Christ. How many graves are there in Africa and Asia? Because thousands of young missionaries were freed by the power of the Holy Spirit from the enchantment of security, and then risked their lives to make much of Christ among the unreached peoples of the world. And Piper finishes, and now how about you? Good place for us to close and pray. Father, we are grateful for the magnificent creation in which you have placed us. Its displays of your power are constant, whether it be in an eclipse, uh, cause people to pause and, and, and just marvel at this element of your creation, or in the power of a hurricane that devastates, that brings that sort of day of destruction that the writer in Ecclesiastes has talked about. The things that we... We think we can prepare for and yet know that ultimately are not in our control. Lord, we thank you for 
the one sure thing, the, the rock that we sang about earlier, the one dependable, reliable, trustworthy one that we can rest in amidst any storms in life, whether they be from a hurricane or they be from a phone call of something that's hit so close to home and our, hit our own family. Thank you that we can ultimately depend on you. Thank you that we can be generous, that we can cast out, that we cannot cling to the things that the world tries to hoard, and that holding them loosely, we can trust that you are the gracious provider. Lord, help us this week to look for opportunities to take risk for the sake of your kingdom. Maybe it's risk in the sense of saying something that might not be received well. Risk in talking about Jesus Christ. Risk in giving something away. Risk in, in parting from family and, and heading back to ministry. Risk in going off to work. Not knowing what the day brings, but seeking to use it for your glory. Lord, in, in all of those ways, we come back to you with a sense of our own weaknesses as human beings who want so very much to hold, to control, to understand, to grip, and yet trusting you. Help us to, to be confident, to trust you, to know you, to, to rest in you. Lord, I pray for the, the younger folks here. Lord, as Ecclesiastes speaks, as sort of the older, wiser, look back at life, pray that that would not be lost. That the, the regrets tend to come later in life when we look back and, and think of the opportunities missed and the risks not taken. Lord, I pray that for the young people here and listening, that you would fill them with the, the power of your spirit, the truth of your word and your grace to be willing to venture out and trust in you, seeking your kingdom first. Lord, help us to do that this week. Thank you for the new week that lies ahead of us. Thank you for the day that we have today. Help us to use it well, to be thankful in it, to be glad in it. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.